Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From the pages of The New Yorker, this is the Weekly Comment Podcast. In Gunshots, Margaret Talbot weighs in on the gun control debate after Parkland. Is this the moment when the politics of guns shifts? Since the fatal shooting of 17 students and staff members last month at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, advocates of stricter gun laws have been asking that question. With the wary hopefulness of people who, time and again, have seen such turning points lead nowhere. This moment does feel different, though largely because the teenage survivors of the Parkland shooting have commanded the national stage with their raw and righteous indignation. Last week, they got a real response, though so far it has come more from businesses than from elected representatives. The nationwide sporting goods chain, Dick's, announced that it would no longer carry assault-style rifles or high-capacity magazines and would not sell guns to people under the age of 21, regardless of local laws. The company's CEO, Edward Stack, told The Times, We love these kids and their rallying cry, Enough is enough. It got to us. By the end of the week, Kroger and Walmart had said that their stores, too, would no longer sell guns to customers younger than 21. Meanwhile, President Trump startled senators and representatives in a meeting at the White House last Wednesday by telling them that he wanted to revive a bill mandating universal background checks for gun buyers, chiding them for being frightened of the NRA, and saying that in some situations— He was in favor of taking people's guns away first and asking questions later. This was particularly outlandish, given his ties to the NRA and his enthusiasm for arming schoolteachers, not to mention the fact that a day later he was back tweeting, good, great, meeting tonight at the Oval Office with the NRA. But his remarks matter anyway. The primitive censors by which Donald Trump divides the world into winners and losers were telling him that, for now at least, the proponents of unfettered gun rights smell like losers. According to a Politico morning consult poll conducted last week, 88% of Americans now support universal background checks. 81% think that a person should be at least 21 in order to buy a gun, 70% endorse a ban on high-capacity magazines, and 68% support a ban on assault-style weapons. Still, gun control advocates might not want to place too much hope in any single moment, even this one. They will have to play a long game, made up of many moments. That's what their opponents have done. Matthew Lacombe, a doctoral candidate at Northwestern University, has been analyzing the NRA's rhetoric over the decades in editorials and letters to the editor that have appeared in its magazine, The American Rifleman. The organization's leaders and members used a remarkably consistent series of words to describe their identity. Law-abiding, peaceable, patriotic, freedom-loving, and average citizens. Their opponents were un-American, tyrannical, communist, and elitist. Wayne LaPierre, the president of the NRA, echoed this language in a speech last week at the Conservative Political Action Committee, invoking a Democratic Party infested with saboteurs who don't believe in capitalism, don't believe in the Constitution, don't believe in our freedom, and don't believe in America as we know it. 
The NRA has been honing its message since the 1930s, when it first became visible on the national scene, fighting federal legislation that mandated an early gun registration and dealer licensing system. By the time the bill emerged from the lawmaking process, the political scientist Carol Skolnick Leff and the historian Mark Leff write, it had been gutted, stripped of its handgun clauses, and revised in line with the objections of the National Rifle Association. The NRA's advantage isn't only its ability to donate to candidates or to pay for expensive lobbyists and ads, though that is formidable. It spent $419 million in the 2016 election cycle, according to the Center for Responsive Politics, which reports that career NRA support for some members of the 115th Congress now reaches well into the seven-figure range. It spent more than $30 million supporting Trump's campaign. But the organization also benefits from its unequivocal rejection of virtually all gun regulations, and from the way that certainty resonates. Most gun owners are not NRA members, but according to Gallup, people who want lenient gun laws are significantly more likely to be single-issue voters than those who want stricter gun laws. Gun owners are also more likely than non-gun owners to have contacted a public official about gun policy. All kinds of people own guns, for all kinds of reasons. Still, some demographic features of gun ownership tend to reinforce a particular political posture. A 2017 Pew Research Center study found that 48% of white men own a gun, compared with 25% of white women, 25% of non-white men, and 16% of non-white women. Gun owners are far more likely to live in rural areas. 41% of whites with a bachelor's degree are gun owners, versus 26% of whites with a more advanced degree. Half of all gun owners say that ownership is essential to their identity. Fear is a factor. Nearly half of male gun owners and almost a third of female owners say that they have a loaded gun, easily accessible to them at all times at home. According to the Pew study, there is a significant link between owning a gun for protection and perceptions of whether the world, broadly speaking, has become more dangerous. Jennifer Carlson, a sociologist who interviewed male gun owners in Michigan, found that many of them considered firearms crucial to reclaiming a sense of purpose, especially if they were no longer breadwinners. Security Nostalgia for an era of unchallenged privilege, a sense of beleaguered white masculinity. These are powerful forces. They helped get Donald Trump elected. Advocacy for gun control laws may never provide the same single-minded identity that politicized gun ownership seems to exert. But this year, again thanks in part to the Parkland students, it's beginning to take a stronger hold. People who want this moment to mean something should remember that they are the majority and that they, too, can choose for however long it takes to be single-issue voters. That was Gunshots by Margaret Talbot from The New Yorker magazine, March 12, 2018, narrated by Jamie Rennell. Also in the magazine this week, Catherine Schultz on Stink Bugs. Jiaying Fan on Chinese wineries, Adam Gopnik on Andrew Lloyd Webber, Alex Ross on Parsifal and Semiramide, Peter Sheldahl on Grant Wood, Emily Nussbaum on Jane the Virgin, 
Hilton Alls on Jerry Springer, The Opera, and Black Light. Anthony Lane on Red Sparrow and Foxtrot. Fiction by Joseph O'Neill and more. Audible.com produces a weekly audio edition of The New Yorker. To subscribe or to download individual issues, we invite you to go to www.audible.com and enter New Yorker in the search box. To subscribe to the comment podcast, go to www.newyorker.com or to the New Yorker room on the iTunes store.